Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week some news from Chile and the United States. Going to start out this episode with actually some good news for once. Uh, the Chilean election that I have been talking to you about for several weeks between Cast and Boric has concluded. It ended last weekend and Boric won. Boric is a very young president. Uh, when he takes office, he will be 35 years old, and he defeats a middle-aged caste who, as I've said before, has serious family connections not only to the Pinochet dictatorship, something that he's very open about, but also to uh, the actual Nazi party. Uh, so the fact that he was denied the presidency of Chile despite his family's connections and you know his greater credentials in some senses is extremely good news. Um, in celebration of this, Boric has been quoted as saying that, quote, if Chile was the birthplace of neoliberalism, it will die here too. This is a reference to the fact that at the beginnings of the Pinochet dictatorship and also immediately prior to it, the United States and several other forces in the world were advocating for the overthrow of Salvador Allende, the socialist president of Chile from 1970 to 1973. And after that overthrow did occur on the part of the Pinochet government, uh, Chile implemented a series of government reforms that have come to be known as neoliberal reforms. Uh, they radically privatized a lot of things at the same time as reducing the government's uh, involvement in the economy, especially as it pertains to benefits and other social programs. This kind of policy package has been advocated throughout the world, uh, not just in Chile and not just in Latin America, but all over the world. You're probably familiar with this kind of approach, you know, decentralize everything, privatize everything. And Chile is often understood as being one of the epicenters of this particular government experiment, this particular political economic experiment. And uh, hopefully Chile will be coming out from under it in the coming years. Moving back to the United States, one of the major coordinators of the January 6th coup had lots of phone conversations with very many members of Congress. Um, Ali Alexander uh, is said to have spoken with Paul Gosar, Biggs, Perry, and a bunch of other members of Congress. These are all Republicans, of course, either by phone or in person. Some of them apparently, according to Alexander, who's this coordinator of a major rally and organization that got people at the coup. Uh, according to Alexander, some of these people insisted on meeting with him only in person. You know, they didn't, they didn't want anything to be going over the phone. They didn't, they didn't want records of any of these conversations, right? The January 6th committee is seriously, apparently focusing on asking questions about this set of congresspeople. They're coming up over and over and over again. We're talking about Gosar, Biggs, Perry, a few others. They're coming up over and over again because these people were major players in the ramp up to the coup. They were go-betweens between the mainstream Republican establishment, you know, by virtue of them being members of Congress, and the outsiders, the fascists who were actually on the street coordinating rallies and meetings, trying to get people to actually invade Congress, potentially commit violence once they were in there. Um, it's extremely interesting that the committee is focusing on these people because it means that they might be looking to actually get Congress people uh, in their investigation. 
Uh, they have made their first step at that. That is, the January 6th Select Committee has made their first step at this. They have asked Representative Scott Perry, uh, who represents the Philadelphia suburbs, or at least a section of it, uh, for information about his involvement uh, in the time leading up to January 6th. Specifically, they want information about his attempt to install uh, a, a person named Clark, who's a Trump lackey who worked in the Justice Department, uh, install Clark as the acting attorney general in order to elevate Clark's bogus, dubious claims about election fraud to the highest echelons of the United States um, legal system. Congressman Perry, of course, has refused these requests to cooperate with the January 6th select committee. It remains to be seen whether the committee will actually subpoena him or how they are going to get this information if he refuses to supply it, and if they subpoena him, what the representative will do in response. Speaking of other people who have been subpoenaed by the committee and their responses to it, Alex Jones has said that he is going to plead the fifth if he ever is forced to take the stand, and he is also suing the committee. Uh, This is a continuation of the main tactic that a lot of the people targeted by the committee have been making delay, delay, delay. You know, they, they, they don't want any of this to really ever see the light of day. They want it to be covered in a bunch of procedural stuff that people in the United States will get bored of and not care about. Lastly, I want to tell you about an event that happened this weekend in Phoenix, Arizona. It's an event held by TPUSA, that's Turning Point USA, and the event was called America Fest. Uh, I guess I don't know if it's America Fest or America Fest. Uh, Like America Fest, like America First, is that what they were going for? I'm not sure. In any case, it was a big speaker series uh, with lots of media people like Tucker Carlson, as well as politicians like Representative Madison Cawthorn, uh, who on stage encouraged his audience to drop out of college uh, because, you know, according to him, college is essentially a scam used to indoctrinate people in liberal ideologies and also to get people's money. Uh, Carlson, of course, was trying to connect with the everyman, but sort of failed very theatrically uh, in his, you know, just real elitism, just he is a big media personality. Uh, But the big star of the event was, of course, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, who got a major standing ovation and a whole lot of attention as he participated in a panel on the, well, on the, the shootings he committed in Kenosha, Wisconsin, during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement uprising. Rittenhouse kept going back to Second Amendment rights during his conversation with the speakers and in in question time. Uh, He also advocated personally for the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, That's what his position has always been, vocally at least. You know, he says that he's in favor of it. This means uh, a lot of complicated stuff, right? Uh, Rittenhouse has become a literal poster child for the right wing. You know, he's, he's literally been trotted out at a major political event, you know, wearing a nice suit uh, in order to give a political speech. But the fact is that he is not personally an extremely great speaker or political strategist or personality on his own. Um, It doesn't seem particularly likely, given his performance here, uh, that he's going to rise beyond being used in this particular way by the organizers of conferences like these or by political actors like Gosar or Cawthorn for example. But the fact remains that this is a man who committed actual partisan violence. He, he murdered people in the street 
because of his political opinions. And he is invited to national events uh, and being shown positions of honor, respect. He's getting standing ovations. Uh, he's getting like nice, cute softball questions about people wanting to marry him, you know, him being an example of American masculinity. If this isn't disgusting or disturbing to you, then I don't think that you have been paying attention to the nature and buildup of fascism and specifically the propensity for fascist violence in the United States today. Finally, going to close out this week, as I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. Today, we are going to the 1970s in Spain, and I'm talking about a man named Luis Carrero Blanco, uh, one of the last leaders of Francoist Spain. Uh, he was born to a military family and joined the Naval Academy in the early 20th century. He was a lieutenant in the Navy by the age of 18 and served in the colonialist wars that Spain uh, engaged in in North Africa, what is now Morocco. At the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, he was teaching at a war college in Madrid, which uh, at that period in the war was Republican territory. This meant that he was on the wrong side. You know, he was a nationalist. And given that this was a civil war, he had to escape. So he first uh, took refuge in various embassies and then finally made his way all the way to France in order to be able to rejoin nationalist Spain uh, via the ocean, where he uh, went on to serve in the navy of the nationalist Spanish forces. Uh, by the conclusion of the war, that is after the war, uh, he became Franco's chief of naval operations. By 1941, uh, after the war was over, as you know, the period of World War II is ramping up, he is a rising politician in the emergent Spanish dictatorship and the Francoist dictatorship. He becomes the undersecretary of the presidency, which is a sort of like right-hand man type figure to Franco. And by all accounts, Blanco himself was always a big Franco loyalist. Uh, he wasn't a particularly ideological person. Like, you know, he wasn't a monarchist. He wasn't a particularly fascist person. He was just loyal to the dictator, to the person, uh, Francisco Franco. And that served him very well in a very personal dictatorship, the, the kind that Franco was running in Spain after World War II. So from the 40s to the 70s, he is really rising very high. Uh, by 1973, he is an admiral in the Navy. You know, he continues to hold his military rank even while serving in the government because this is a military dictatorship after all. And he is also deputy prime minister. Clearly, he is one of the top contenders in line to succeed Franco uh, whenever Franco dies. Uh, Franco always kept it sort of close to the chest about exactly how the dictatorship would progress after his death or resignation or just like his inability to run the government, like he just became too old. Uh, but Blanco was a real contender for this. However, uh, instead of being able to fulfill, you know, if you could call it that, his destiny, uh, he was assassinated by ETA, uh, which is a terrorist organization in Spain advocating for the independence or at least uh, the substantial autonomy of the Basque region, uh, which is in the northeastern part of Spain and also has some territory in southwestern France. So he was assassinated by ETA this week in history, the 20th of December, 1973. Uh, he was killed as he was trying to return home from mass uh, in a car bomb. 
His death was a real nail in the coffin for the continuation of the Spanish dictatorship. After Franco's death, it became clear that the political problems that were plaguing the dictatorship by this point, by the late 60s and early 70s, were really coming to a head and that the dictatorial apparatus was not adequate to deal with them. And so, you know, his death was a serious harbinger of the return of constitutional monarchy and liberal democracy to Spain. So, uh, Luis Carrero Blanco, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please uh, leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please share this podcast with friends, family, or comrades. You can check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can talk to me on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. Or you can email me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. All right. Thanks, folks. And I will talk to you next week.